Welcome to the Scottish Liberty Podcast, episode 43, with me, Anthony Samaroff. And, of course, me, Tom Will. We have a very special guest today, Darren McGarvey, also known as Loki, the Scottish rapper. Um, and we're going to talk about loads of stuff. So, um, Darren, oh, tell us a little that. bit about yourself and introduce yourself to our audience. Okay, how are you all doing? I am Darren. My name is Darren. I am uh, a man of many mediocre abilities that involves um, making music, taking part in community work, and aspiring to be a writer and do a bit of uh, brass neck journalism here and there, as well as obviously being a father, um, which has taken up quite a considerable amount of time over the last course, year. <laughs> so that's, I, I'm very, very busy just now. Um, and one of the things that I thought would be a great um, way to kick off the conversation so people can have an insight into the kind of transformation you're wanting to bring to the world is to talk a little bit about your community work and um, what, what you've done, where that started and you know what, what led you to it, what's its purpose? Okay, well I grew up in a community uh, that in, in Britain is regarded as a deprived community, so a poorer community where people are at a significant disadvantage when compared to people who hail from more affluent communities, where people are educated better, will live longer, uh, and, and, and how this disparity manifests in any community that you choose to mention, you okay. know, I, I, I feel that the class-based analysis okay. is, is a good one for at least thinking about the inequity between people from lower down the income scale and people higher up. So anyway, in my community, uh, the poverty manifests first as idleness, worklessness, addiction, social problems, but eventually evolved into resistance, activism. So I very much grew up in, in an area that was um, reborn after many years of deprivation. So there were protests that were resisting the building of a new road through a commonly owned park that raised many issues around local democracy, who makes a decision, who determines how public spaces are used, why is some criticism deemed not constructive and some criticism is deemed perfectly fine, who makes the decisions. Um, a shopping centre was built uh, on on the motorway that eventually went through, uh, and uh, and over the course of ten years, the the community went from being very politically engaged and very politically active to being pacified by this massive consumer cathedral. So I grew up very much a lefty. I was raised a lefty. I was raised to view uh, um, shops and business with scepticism. Uh, I was viewed, raised to view conservative politicians with disdain. I'm very much raised to think that my worldview, the way that I see life, morally correct, but also a practical necessity that just needs to be enacted politically for the benefit of all people. Um, I were, were, first, you, were you raised to have a suspicion of wealth? Certainly, yeah. certainly. Uh, a, a suspicion of wealth, but also a, a, a private kind of reverence for it. Okay. Uh, too much of a reverence for it. Right. Many of the abusive forces in my life got in, in my life because they had a bit more money. 
right. than, than people in my family. And so they were kind of trusted automatically okay. and then used the trust put in them right. uh, to, 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 to perform feats of emotional and psychological abuse that we all still deal with now. So, I mean, that's, but, but that's the same for a lot of families. Anyway, in terms of the community work, that was always instilled in me to be part of the community, as well as obviously the problems of the sort of left-wing outlook that I've described. There are a lot of great attributes to it, which are about, um, you know, considering the benefit to yourself as well as the community and trying to um, balance that. And um, you know, volunteering your your time to support people, okay. and and so uh, I started getting opportunities to volunteer in the community in my teens. Set up a local drama group that was designed to sort of engage local young people. But I was always fascinated by who was in control of the community. It wasn't enough for me to have a drama group. I wanted to know where we were getting our money from and who decided why we got the money we got. Okay which always set me on a collision course with everyone um, from a very young age. So right. I think I was regarded as quite a precocious and annoying person from a young age. Okay. So was it was a prevailing attitude like, you know, why are you asking these questions or getting the money to shut up? Yes, very yeah. much so. At the age of 18, I wrote a sort of my kind of, a, a, I guess, my attempt at a thesis of the community. <laughs> and it was called the Patch Adams Theory. And it was inspired by the film Patch Adams, the Robin Williams film. Yeah. Yeah, where basically the, the, the whole idea, the core of it is um, if we look at healthcare as just a business and we don't actually engage with the humanity of people or find a way to integrate that analysis into the system, then we actually, uh, we actually replicate sickness because we fail to understand that the business component and the human component are equally important. And, and so I sort of like, I tried to channel that analysis into what I seen was going on in the community where people were being very well paid, but saw themselves as public servants. Um, I, whereas my idea of a public servant is someone who gives up their time freely, um, you know, who, who doesn't stand to gain a hell of a lot for the service that they put in. And, you know, so that, that was the, very much my journey. And then eventually those, uh, because of the, the, the social environment in which my family grew up, then we were a family that was often dysfunctional, under a lot of stress, not have a lot of money, uh, and, and emotionally very kind of ragged, run ragged. So uh, I, I left home at quite a young age, became homeless, became an alcoholic, very much fell through the system, and a, a few safety valves were activated to catch me before I fell. So, I've got an insight into the system from both sides of the fence. You know, I've been a service user, I've been a service provider, mm -hmm. I've been uh, I've been a mentor, and I've been under someone's wing. I've uh, I've helped people, and I've been helped. Yeah. And uh, and I think like at the core of it, what it's given me is this ability to try and see things from two points of view and reconcile those yeah. points of view when obviously it can be challenging. Can I check? Was it? Would you describe your family as a nuclear family, or was it fragmented? I mean, it was like was it explosive, both, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, what I meant by that was, was it was it both parents and and uh, were both parents there? Or, or, or? no, right. my, my mother left home when I was young, uh, okay. around ten years old, right. and she was a chronic alcoholic and drug addict. Okay. So we grew up in an environment that was unpredictable, that was dangerous, that was frightening. Okay. And this experience not only 
sort of yeah, increase the chances of us running into trouble in future, but actually change the way that we developed as human beings physiologically growing up in that sort of environment. You, you go through all sorts of physical and psychological adaptations in order to survive whatever terrain you're placed in as a human being and in a, in a stressful environment. Yeah. Children uh, undergo uh, quite significant changes at, yeah. at, at the level of their brain. There's trauma. Which, which, which later uh, become failing coping strategies yeah. that put them out of sync in relationships uh, and generally what society expects of them, they can't live up to it because right. they have no insight into how, how deep their disadvantage runs. So that's been a journey that I've been on, and, and, and as well as being on that journey, I've tried always to articulate the experience of that journey as clearly as I can mm -hmm. in a way that people from my sort of background will understand, but also that people from perhaps a more privileged background um, will also understand and not right. feel too challenged by it. I okay. realise that that's, there's a balance there between letting people know what you went through and accusing other people for it being their fault. Right. Right. Yeah, I think um, there's not enough understanding of the fact that, you know, well, what makes humans so successful and so unique is that our ability to adapt to environment, right? That's why we're on every continent. But the psyche also adapts to the environment of childhood. Now, what may be suitable for helping you survive an environment that you have very little control over when you're a child might not be a successful environment, a successful survival strategy for when you're an adult and you're meant to um, go out into the world, form healthy relationships, and um, you know, provide for yourself and so forth. And I, I feel like to an extent, um, society really hasn't caught up with the need to actually help people who, you know, when you're going through 11 to 13 years of an education system where you're basically bossed around and told to do what you're told when you're told every day and you come out with an, without enough skills to get a minimum wage job at the end of that, um, a lot of people are in the position of not being able to adapt to the demands of adulthood and, uh, I, I, and I don't know yeah, uh, can you comment on yes, that? Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. You know, if there was one fundamental modification that I, that I would encourage um, people to make uh, in their communities, if possible, uh, and I already see it actually uh, beginning to happen because there is a need for it, uh, is the, the education at some level has to be about showing us how to live. Really? Yeah. Uh, exactly. So, you know, it, it has to be, I mean, for thousands of years, thinkers and philosophers have been writing about how to live, right. you know, life's too short, yeah. you know, books about how not to waste your life written 2,000 years ago. <laughs> These are the things that you shouldn't do if you want to avoid unliving your life. Mm -hmm. But then we go into school with all of that knowledge that we now consider cliche because it's common knowledge, whereas yeah. 2,000 years ago, the idea of life being too short and not to waste it was probably the cutting edge of human thinking. Um, but instead of actually integrating these things into our life, we see them as isolated in the past, yeah. that we are somehow on the cusp of a new discovery, when actually what school has become is a memory test 
um, as an endurance test, how much stress can you take yeah. before you break? Um, it's, it's become a, a, about deference to authority. Yeah. It's become about going to a school and thinking the teacher is the only person in the school that you can learn from. Mm -hmm. So you ignore your interactions with janitors, with dinner ladies, and you subtly uh, take that out into society with you. Right. So you think that there's only a certain type of person that has a certain type of admissible knowledge for you to yeah. integrate into your understanding. But actually, you can learn more about how to live from a dinner lady yeah. than you might from an English teacher. And uh, there, there's a process of discernment yeah. that has to take place that does have to be educated into someone yeah. about trusting your instincts and about learning being as much about the practical business of dealing with people, of regulating emotions, yeah. of respecting other people's boundaries and being able to assert your own. All of these things that bring us out of sync with ourselves and out of balance with ourselves. It, it, it's bizarre that as a recovering addict, the only place in society where I go to discuss this sort of stuff is a group with other addicts. Yeah. You shouldn't have to be an addict who almost killed yourself uh, in order to learn about mm. um, emotional literacy yeah. and understanding yourself. Uh, because and because th this is the, the full extent of human knowledge already covers this stuff. This stuff we've yeah. got down as a species, but it's just... For some reason, it's it's been it's been um, it's been ejected from the pantheon of of what we're supposed to understand at this point. Yeah, well, it seems to me. I mean, I don't think I'm alone in this. Uh, anything that I learned of value, uh, anything that I learned that was any use to me in the long term, I learned outside the school. Me too. And the, me too. and the, the, but the, the three most important things I think you could probably learn in your life is a how to be a good father or how to be a good parent, uh, how to have lifelong friendships, how to get a job and keep it. They're probably the, the, one of the three of the most important things. Right. Ever, and, and I don't remember anybody at school telling me how to do that. You know, it was something I had to work out for myself. And it took me a long time how to, and I still don't know if I've got a handle on it properly. Yeah. And that's, that's a bizarre situation. People don't know how to listen to other people uh, and console Yeah, yeah, them. I know, I'm sorry. Which I think for me, one of the best things that I ever learned was, you know, when someone was upset, not to interject or angry, just to go, yeah, that it sounds like you're really angry, but obviously it's a fundamental skill for me as a counsellor now. But um, just for everyone, just to be able to give someone your attention, not invalidate them, not interject, wait till they feel heard and then if you've got anything to add they might be more receptive to it there's no reason why that most fundamental skill couldn't be learned taught in school but um i think as you say it's like there's no evidence that this um that this individualistic everyone's got their own work is the best way to learn in fact in the progressive schools uh, people teach so people teach and learn from each other and they, they join in group learning, and uh, but the, the education system seems to do whatever the opposite of the evidence says. I mean, you mentioned the stress test, and it's like, how much can you take until you break? The, why would you learn better under stress than when you're relaxed? You know, that you, the, uh, learning is about using the most advanced part of your brain and stress is about using the most primitive part of your brain. The two things are kind of like mutually mm. exclusive. So yeah, we do need to really look at that. 
I'm interested in talking about um, or hearing about the community work that you've done, and because because we know that you do it, but like what what have you engaged in? Well, different types of work throughout the years. Obviously, when I began in my capacity as a volunteer, then a lot of the things that I thought I was doing, I wasn't really doing. Right. So I was just developing a practice, basically, essentially an evolving body of knowledge that changes on the circumstance where I integrate new things that I've learned into my understanding and it's always shifting depending on the circumstance. Is it children that you were I work with children, young children, I work with uh, women, I work with young men. Predominantly I've worked with young men because they pose the most significant challenge to challenged communities, you know, right. whether it be housing schemes or housing estates. Uh, or or in prisons or mm -hmm. um, in residential settings such as um, children's homes, residential schools, secure units, which is essentially where a young person goes when they're too young to be sent to prison. So I've got an insight into all of these environments, but also I've got an insight into the emotional circumstances and the family context that can create the conditions for a child to end up in these environments right. because I grew up in that environment right. myself and just by luck and just by having some of the right people around me right. I've managed to avoid that path but I very much see the people I work with as my own alternative future or right. history okay. as opposed to me being you know a, a, someone who's there to bestow sometimes you can get grandiose right. but, yeah. but 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 really I, I, I it's my capacity to listen and learn yes. from them that, that yes. is important. And so it's always uh, important to kind of bring it back to that. But the work has been very diverse through the years. There are some things that I'm not so good at uh, they, or are less effective at. My real strength is building a rapport sufficient for deep and meaningful work very quickly. So, uh, and I do that by trying to be as authentic as possible. Yes. So if I go into a setting such as a prison with some women, I will tell them as I begin that I'm nervous about being there because I've never worked with women before. Um, or I will tell them about something that's going on. I'll very much become aware of where I am in the moment and start from there. And this helps them to get a reading of me, to take my measurements, but also intuitively, you know, at, at a human level, we're all beginning to synchronise. And it's when we synchronise and how quickly we synchronise that means not only that we have more time to do more deep and meaningful work, but also that that work is more enjoyable and that we leave with stronger feelings of belonging, of purpose, of increased well-being at the end of yeah. it. And this is where the work is important. Uh, it's, it's very rarely ever about the activity that you're there to perform. Okay. That's most, more, for my work, that's a vessel, that's a conduit to these feelings of increased well-being which are key to unlocking self-esteem issues, confidence, giving, helping someone discover uh, a, a, a feeling of forward momentum that will allow them to take a risk, such as okay. reading out loud, right. such as, that, that helps them transcend a barrier that's keeping okay. them where they are. Uh, and so that's, I've only gained that insight because I've learned to understand myself right. and so I understand now but by being intuitive to myself and true right. to myself uh, I am I'm a lot more effective at engaging with other people. Yeah. Okay, was, was, there, was there such a thing as a defining moment in your life where you could go back and say okay this is the thing where I got it, where something dropped in and went I can't live like this anymore or, or 
Well, I mean, there are different uh, there are different areas in my life. There okay. is my journey through there was my journey through my addiction. Okay. Um. So the I mean, the, you have a few penny drop moments. You have the moment. You have the moment where you realise that you have a problem, mm -hmm. but then you postpone doing something about it because you're young. Uh, and then you have the you have the moment when you're not so young, and you know you have the problem. And you can't postpone putting it off, so you do something about it, and then you realise you can. So suddenly you realise all you need to do is stop, yeah. but you can't. So right. you don't have the power to stop. Okay. And this is a frightening moment because you've already conceded that you are probably going to die or become a, a, the worst, most version of yourself. I mean, addiction leads to all forms of depravity in the end. Um, and just and then it's just your luck who you happen to be around right. and you're on that journey you know some people become wife beaters child abusers people become drug addicts drug dealers they become terrible burdens to their families their communities a drain on society a drain on everyone around them literally just drowning souls pulling everyone down with them as they go and that was all in my future and i don't see myself as above any of those possible outcomes so there's something horrific when you know that's your future but you still can't stop okay um and it, what i learned for, through um through pain and through putting myself around other sober people who said they knew a way to live without this was that uh, it wasn't actually the drinking it was my problem it was uh, it was my personality the filters through which i interpreted reality and how that provoked me to mm. just react as opposed to respond so I manufactured a lot of the issues in my life later on. As a child, obviously I didn't. As an adult, I did. Yeah. I had a victim narrative um, that ran on for longer than it should have. I always had an excuse for why I behaved the way I did. I always gave myself plenty of leeway for my and lapses in integrity. Right. But never gave anyone else, never gave my parents any leeway, never gave my friends any leeway. I was always holding everyone else to account. Yeah. Uh, but 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 a little it slowed off the mark when it came to and uh, what's your part in this darren and so that's been a fundamental shift it's been okay. in, my, in my polarity as a human being yeah um and then of course it's about maintaining that insight yeah. in order to build on it but understanding that if i don't do the things that i need to do to maintain well-being yeah. and have an insight that i'll return to that default position okay. but it's only a matter of time before i start to think using drinking drugs is is a good idea right my, my default position in life is quite resentful quite unhappy quite selfish egotistical so I, I i have to aspire to more in order to be a higher form of myself right uh, I, and this requires counterintuitively mm -hmm. uh, conducting business with other people and work Doing things that don't feel like I should do them, yeah. like apologising for something when I'm wrong, me things like that. The culmination of all of those instances where you don't try to take responsibility for your own actions results in this horrible feeling of negativity that's essentially depression. For me, that's what it was. Mental illness through my own inaction in life, my yeah. own lack of insight in life. Okay. And so now I try to conduct my affairs in a different way for my own benefit, yeah. but actually it does benefit anyone yeah. in my life as well. And that must be a massive advantage in your work because I guess you don't have to have ever broken your leg. I mean, if you're a doctor, you don't ever have to have broken your leg yourself in order to be able to treat a broken leg. But I guess 
for somebody coming from your own background, it must be a, a game changer or a good door opener to be able to talk and people say, well, this guy's not just talking for a book. He's not just talking for, you know, what he's learned in some university course. He's actually, this is real. Yes, yes, it is. One of the big confusions around, you know, when we think about class and the difference between someone from a lower class background and a higher class background is that we always associate authenticity with the poverty experience. Yeah. So the person who comes from poverty is always regarded as more real, more raw, more authentic. Okay. But in truth, actually, anyone who's true to themselves is equally authentic. Absolutely. And it's about finding your own authenticity and it's about not being ashamed to transmit your own signal. Now, on any given day, depending on where culture is, where you are physically, you could be hanging around in a room full of academics, you could be hanging in a room full of recovered addicts or homeless people. It's all about retaining as much as possible your authenticity, whatever you are, because this, the, everything shifts around you. Sometimes we adopt a kind of chameleon posture towards social situations or wherever we might find ourselves. And actually, um, yes, I do uh, benefit from uh, the fact that I have a story that a lot of people find quite compelling. But that's, I, I can't attribute that to myself or make no. myself up for that. No. It's total chance, it's total circumstance. No. There's a lot of luck involved. Mm -hmm. And just so happens culture and society has a certain sort of reverence for someone who appears to have transcended difficulty, whether okay. someone from a more privileged background might be seen to have had it easy. Whereas actually, I don't, I don't believe anyone has it easy. I think we all have our own subjective experience of what we can handle and what we find painful yeah. uh, and what i've tried to do is i've recovered from the kind of the malady of of, of 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 issues around my own mental health and why i drank in the first place is to is to is to try and yield less wrath for the people that i was raised to think were responsible for my uh, poverty experience right you know so the elites um middle-class people, Tories, these people that are, essentially I was given a green light to hate and ridicule uh, and find it funny if they were afraid or if they were humiliated. Essentially, a process of dehumanisation yeah. that I wouldn't stand for anyone else engaging in. Uh, I've had to unlearn that, I've had to examine that. Uh, I, I, and actually, as much as that puts me out of step with a lot of people in my community, who continue to find me an unyielding pain in the arse. Right. At the same time, I've got to stay true to me. And there's a voice within me that's saying, this is what you should be doing. Yeah. This is what you're about. So I really want to get into that last piece that them thinking. Yeah. But what I found really the underlying thread from this, your community work and also engaging in people who with people who you were of the belief were the enemy is this idea of us meeting as individuals, uh, taking away some barriers so that whatever we've learned to armor ourselves around can shine through and then maybe we can relate to one another as individuals instead of me having a concept of you like, you know, we could be like, oh, well, we're libertarians, he's a lefty, like, um, you know, he want. I don't know what you want. I, we've not discussed politics yet, but I can have a stereotype. Oh, you just want to hand all this power to government, and mm -hmm. uh, and or, or you can have an, uh, um, a stereotypical vision of us, which is you just want poor people to die on the street or something like that. Yeah. You know. But actually, we can uh, unmask like what's actually really going on there, and 
before we go on to that, I was just wondering if you're familiar with Carl Rogers and his no. work. He's because I hear a lot of what we call Rogerian um, thinking and what you're saying. Carl Rogers was a therapist who um, pioneered the humanistic view of psychotherapy, where the therapist isn't the authority. He is there to unlock the wisdom of the client. And he created like non-directive ways of working with people. And he talks a lot about authenticity and just coming into that situation and being yourself, not trying to fix the client, not trying, and even mm. the word client mm. is better than patient, but it's still. It's still got a wee bit yeah. to go. But we're ironing yeah. these things out, you know, that's yeah. another area where I used to have quite a lot of wrath right. was these words are not the right words but as 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 human beings as a like it's it's like it's a case of okay in this instance these words might not be ideal but when you look at the whole journey of the species to negotiate all of right. these intricacies we're doing okay yeah, all right yeah. so sometimes you need to sort of zoom out yeah. and see yeah. what's going on in the wider context of our journey as humanity and a civilization and not always homing in on what you personally find unfair or uncomfortable right. it's getting the balance isn't it and yeah. i think is whenever you engage in something i'm seeing the importance of this is not seeing yourself as like a jug with the knowledge and the other person as a cup mm. and you just want to pour your superior insight into the other person this is the standard in the education system it's quite likely if someone goes to see a psychiatrist and used to be very very prevalent in the mental health field and with your kind of community work if you go in thinking you're there to act on people mm -hmm. and make them something you're likely to get a resistance whereas if you go in there wanting to engage with them as human beings something magic can happen and just talking about this i'm starting to see where i sometimes go wrong in online debates and things as well because often i do think i know more than the person that i'm speaking to and i can very easily want to pour my superior knowledge into them whereas maybe i should see it as an interaction between two individuals which i'm very good at doing in person but find more difficult online mm. and then you can really if what you, do you mean by online uh, just with with writing yeah with writing then there's a difficulty because the two big uh features are, are not available when you do that you know you can't see something you can't hear somebody's tone yes. tone yes. is a big thing you know so so many times people fall out yes. online whether it's facebook or whatever, because they don't read the tone yes. they don't know they can't see the people's yes. facial expressions I mean, you can use emoticons but it doesn't quite do it and you know there's, there's so much missing and that's why people misconstrue uh and misinterpret so much of what's said online so it's, yeah it's, for sure yeah. but there are some things that you can do to give yourself an advantage but they require a lot of patience and one thing is just to before you answer the person's point say you know am i under, to understand that your position is x or do you do you think this or is what you're trying to say this and they can go yeah and and explain their point more fully you've already put yourself in a position where they're less likely to um take offense to what you say if you've tried to show some understanding of their position but you well, know, uh, would you say that at any point it's unhelpful to maybe use the word fucktard <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I think it is I, 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 this is 
this is why, like, you know, when I was talking about earlier about these yeah. principles that yeah. I learned about yeah. about conducting myself yeah. in a certain kind of way, yeah. because I think that you have to carry them into everything you do or aspire to carry them in. So right. if I go into recovery meeting, then I shouldn't just be uh, nice and respectful and, and show humility in that room. The challenge is how do I show those principles in a challenging real right. life scenario yeah. where you feel besieged by the stimulus of the modern world, by other people's assumptions, by um, by your own feelings of frustration, inadequacy, all of these things that create filters through which you view everyone else's actions. And actually, it was through uh, hitting so many walls with social media because we were just told the internet was a brilliant tool. Yeah. No one really understood the challenges ahead or yeah. the inherent limitations. Well, a shovel's a brilliant tool, but you know you can either dig a hole or hit somebody in the face yes. with it. You know, so it's like, exactly, yeah. exactly, and I think that that's one of many good analogies that you could use. Ultimately, what I started to learn was that um, that that, uh, that that social media is not analogous to life. Yeah. But it is in the sense of you do get what you put in. So if you're being negative all the time and you're being and you're sneering all the time, you get that back like a boomerang almost immediately, yeah. which makes your social media experience extremely unpleasant. Which if you have no insight into why it's unpleasant, you will continue to replicate that experience, right. and uh, 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 and actually that can then pollute and toxify your real life. Okay, and that's what's happening for a lot of people. So I think what we're learning now is, uh, what we're learning now is actually. The same way a dog can hear a certain frequency that you can't hear, or the same way that that another animal has a specific attribute that 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 means they have insight into some dimension of experience yeah. that you don't have as a human being. Social media is something that we can't actually interpret. It places all of reality on canvas happening at once. Yeah. And all we've got is a brain that can break things down mm-hmm. into tribal patterns. And understanding things in terms of only how they affect us. Yeah. That's not an indictment on us personally. That's a reality of our makeup. Yeah. And only by gaining more insight into that will we start to understand why we have such strong emotional reactions. Sure. And what mechanisms we can use and strategies we can use to avoid these corners of the internet we get involved bogged down with having to clarify what we actually meant while accusing yeah. someone else of meaning something yeah, yeah, they didn't yeah, mean. Yeah. Uh, it's just a nightmare because you don't have that totally. human experience where you understand instinctively and you want to cooperate. Yeah. I mean, how do we feel about, I, I mean, we're only going to go here, but now that it's come into my mind because we're talking about social media, you know that Katie Price has put up, is trying to pressure, she's got, a, I think it's 250,000 signatures on she's trying to pressure the government into making a specific law about bullying uh, online, and I think that's got all sorts of problems associated with it. Um, not least of all, who decides what is and what isn't online bullying. Yes, well, I mean, right, right. Yeah. Bullying in itself is a very complicated uh, human interaction that yeah. involves multiple parties kind of being a sort of fly on the wall and deciding what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that as much as possible, that as much as possible, the, in real life, when we have like a bully and a victim sort of dynamic, uh, people should be encouraged to try and negotiate that and, and it be between themselves. Obviously with adults or people present facilitating yeah. that, because ultimately these are the skills that people are going to need to learn growing up, otherwise they're always going to be looking to a paternal figure yeah. 
to negotiate conflicts with them. Now, some people might feel shocked at that. Some people might think, oh, well, what if it's a dangerous person? It's a dangerous world. Yes. So, uh, obviously, unless someone is actually physically threatening you or yeah, has yeah. physically harmed you, yeah. what you're dealing with is words and threats. Yeah. And on social media, that's all that's happening. Yeah. Um, so, it's, it's about getting the right balance between being sensitive to people who yeah. feel threatened or fearful. I mean, clearly, she's a disabled, she has a disabled or, or a child with learning difficulties. Uh, and it's it's something she feels strongly about because the child suffered some online abuse by some idiots. Yes. But I don't think that, that making a law and sort of, you know, criminalising maybe even young kids well, for, for online bullying is, 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 a, yeah. is a good way to well, go. With making a law, the only thing that you can make go away is the behaviour. And the only reason why the behaviour goes away is there's a threat of force there. Mm. It cannot deal with the issues that are driving the behaviour. Yeah. So that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why libertarians tend to be sceptical of state power in general, because, you know, you, you pass the law, you, you forbid people at the point of a gun from doing things, but the reason why they might do those things um, has not gone away, you know, whether those are economic yeah. or behavioural or uh, and, and so forth. Yeah. People so, behave ethically because they feel they're being watched, mm. and that they won't behave as ethically if they felt that they could get away with it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That's a good point. And another and another pro problem with punishment in the education system. So the importance of conflict resolution and uh, a conflict resolution skill is to be able to listen to something that you disagree with and give a little space to yourself between your reaction to that and um, your response to that, which allows you to then give some space to the other person um, and if you have often experienced that, that if someone says something I disagree with if I just instead if I shut down my desire to just go in and educate them and say well you know how did you come to that conclusion or why do you think that and give them a chance to explain why they believe that they're a lot more open to taking on my point of view than if I just railroad them so you, why don't you tell us about this us versus them thinking and your transformation in that regard? Okay. So obviously, I mean, running parallel to all of my journey is my recovery, which has informed how I should better conduct myself, which brings me into more harmony in life. But at the same time, it also knocks you out of sync with people who aren't on that journey. And one of the ways that this kind of manifests itself was a couple of years back when I wrote an art having spent a considerable amount of time exploring a new algorithm online uh, after um, experiencing some pushback from people in the community regarding something that I had said where I was accused of um, being a misogynist right. uh, or something like that, something of that nature. Aye, that's right. I remember I was performing at a, a pro-independence night. It was in 2015 after we had lost the referendum. But at this event, there was no humility that we had lost. There was this assumption that the reason we had lost was because all the people who voted no just didn't understand. Yeah. So I got invited to this event to perform with a lot of the kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of rotating carousel of, of, of familiar guest faces, Elaine C. Smith and, and the like. Mm -hmm. um, no harm with them, obviously. And no. yeah. um, my, my goal was I'm going to go in and disrupt this event. I'm going to go in and I'm going to say some things that are going to upset people. 
and I want to make sure uh, when I leave everyone in here is arguing with each other right. because that's what needs to happen. So that's what I went and done. Uh, and uh, and over time, not just for the sake of it, not just to cause disruption, but because you felt that there was there was a debate that needed to happen, that just wasn't going on. Uh, there was no. It was all very smug and self-satisfied. Right. But actually, the truth was, a lot of people there felt like I did, but no one had started to articulate what it looked yeah. like to say, actually, we've got some work to do here. So, um, so basically, I went on and, I, and at first, and I was sort of just improvising my set, and I, I, I started off saying something along the lines of, you know, we need to be kinder to each other as people in this new Scotland. So, very much tried to kind of triangulate this idea proposed constantly by the Yes movement of this nice, friendly social justice Scotland and then juxtapose that obviously by saying and that includes being kind to Tories as well, doesn't it? Because mm. this is the red line for many people in the Yes movement because the Tories are the outgroup. Yeah. So I said, you know, we need to be kind to each other, we need to respect each other, we need to understand that no matter what political persuasion we come from, everyone wants the best for society, yeah. usually, don't they? And they all went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, including Tories. And obviously, I'm trying to throw a cat among the pigeons. I'm trying yeah. to c cause people to examine their beliefs in the same way that I eventually did after I seen the result of the mm -hmm. referendum. Because I decided I knew what was going on and I was wrong, which caused me to think, what else am I wrong about? So right. it started me on this trajectory of self-examination, which I did very publicly, that challenged a lot of people. So anyway, during that set, I also made a joke about Madonna, um, when she appeared to um, uh, she appeared to kiss Drake on stage, um, but but hadn't uh, uh, hadn't tried to get his consent, so it looked like she forced herself right. on him, which mm -hmm. I thought was an interesting inversion of the power dynamic that we always hear about in terms yeah. of gender. So so I, I simply just remarked on it the same way a comedian would remark on it by saying, "Did you see that Madonna forced herself on Drake?" And then I right. says. But it's Madonna, everything she does looks forced. So I thought that was quite a funny joke, right? Okay, yeah. and, and, and immediately a section of the audience um, zeroed in on that as evidence of sexism and misogyny. So at first I thought, that's cool, I'll push back against it. So then I started making jokes about how it was funny that she fell down the stairs. Right. Not because she was a woman, but because she was this figure that was so unimpeachable in our culture. But she fell down the stairs just like everyone falls down the stairs and suddenly she was a human being again. Yeah. And there was just something funny about yeah. that. And it may have been a bit cruel in hindsight, but it certainly wasn't motivated by the fact that... So it's just been iconoclastic, basically. Gender yeah. was not the reason why it was funny she fell down the stairs. She just so happened to be a woman. But is there not a disparity? I mean, people talk in the social justice movement talk about a disparity of power. Isn't there just generally a... Uh, disparity of power between a celebrity and an everyday person, whether that person is male or female. I mean, surely, if we're to check our privilege, you know, Madonna's more privileged than the vast majority of men and women. So, when does this? Why? Why are we select? Why? Well, she's not, not privileged. She's worked hard for everything. Yes. Well, got. no. I think that's. I think that's <laughs> I think right. She has. I think that's right. Yeah, well, she has. Well, the, the, the reason I bring that up is because. Uh, it's a trajectory a lot of right. people have gone on in the last couple of years, which yeah. is saw the rise of a kind of pushback against traditional left-wing idealism. And ultimately, what happened was people started calling me certain things. So I started researching online 
about what it was that was going on because it was the first time that I yeah. had actually experienced this. I've been called a misogynist, and there's yeah. times in my past where I look back and go, that was misogynistic, or that was um, sexist, what I said. Part of it was because I was young, part of it was because I live in a kind of hyper-masculine culture. Yeah. It's even more hyper-masculine in working-class communities where you have to Absolutely. act tough. So, so it's just, it's not making an excuse. I, no. concede, I concede, you know, my behaviour yeah. easily. But what happened was uh, I started to look out online and then it created this algorithmic bubble around me where um, I started to realise there was this other culture happening that no one else knew about, no one else seen. So I learned a lot and I dabbled a lot and I went down a lot of wee wormholes. But eventually I came back up for breath and uh, I, I, and then I started trying to articulate this back to the community, yeah. saying, look, man, there's a movement that's happening out there. It's not one big movement, yeah. but... The one thing they've all got in common is they're coming for us. Yeah. And we're the first thing on the hit list. And we need to get wise about how we deal with issues that we don't think need to be debated. Because there's a whole new understanding out there and a whole new range of moral matrices mm -hmm. that actually condemn us for yeah. our immorality, for our illiberal way of looking at life, yeah. and ultimately our refusal to accept any culpability for the state of the world. In fact, our position on the radical left and on the left is ultimately we will be proved right by the end of the world. Mm. That is no position to have. But no. ultimately, you're waiting for your political opportunity and the collapse of society and that this is what you're waiting for. Yeah. And suddenly I started to, once you have an initial difficulty in conceding these things mm. to your innermost self because mm. you've integrated them into your identity, therefore... Ripping them out is like ripping out an yeah. organ. Yeah. Uh, in terms of your ego, you know. So, but then ultimately, I started finding a way to kind of articulate that to the community through yeah. journalism and posts and stuff. Yeah. But then actually, I totally misread them, and I, I took months to write a three thousand word piece called "Privilege and Prejudice," which essentially outlined the problem that a lot of the analyses around privilege around social justice, around toxic masculinity, yeah. um, has, has still got a bit to go until it's actually viable as yeah. anything more than a theoretical underpinning. And and, uh, and uh, until we grapple with that, yeah. then we are going to hemorrhage support, not just from white males who are struggling to readjust to their demoted position in the culture, but women, people of colour, all the people that we claim to represent, because the yeah. criticism of the left isn't just coming from white males, although that's what people would like to think. It's yeah. coming from across the spectrum. It's asymmetric. And, and and actually what's happened, instead of that being an opportunity for people on the left to open themselves up to the criticism, they use the most extreme elements of of, of the alt-right as an excuse yeah. to double down on their absurdity also. And, and what it does is it just creates two polar extremes yeah. that won't budge. So more and more people are trying to move into a new space where these kind of conversations yeah, are happening. Yeah. I think this is the new space yeah. and we're really privileged ourselves yeah. to, to be pioneering this. But yeah, I mean, what, the inter what interests me is in this drive for social justice, people are trying to work towards an utopian world where people live in harmony. Um, and yet their means for achieving that is completely disharmonic, which is attacking people, calling it, 
calling them out viciously and violently, making you know, making people feel like crap because they are the enemy. Now, um, I feel like you're just basically, you know, if you fight fire with fire, all you get is a bigger fire, basically. And this is just fanning the flames of hatred. And then you get smug people on the alt-right calling out these social justice warriors. And their tone is always, oh, they're such fucking idiots, aren't they? These people are good. And I, I really, they do really well on YouTube. They do really, really well on YouTube. Mm. And I think that's, uh, I wish that our show, in which we kind of bring a modicum of uh, decorum. The voice of reason. <laughs> yes, indeed. But, uh, did as well as these... Um, Demagogues do well. You know, it's always you know the, the rabble rousers always get yeah. more more attention. But share what, the what, what, Scottish Liberty broadcast. What I was going to say is like the, the yeah. weird thing I find about the, the disconnect on the left between the, the the elite the left sort of the elite on the left sort of like the the sort of um, maybe middle class lefties or uh, sort of university educated socialists and work the the working class roots of the left that disconnect that was made manifest when Gordon Brown, when, she, when he met that woman, wasn't being, in my view, particularly racist. She just raised concerns that she had about her community. And he walked away and he was like, oh, that horrible racist woman. You know, and it's like, hang on a minute. Have you, and I grew up in a working class community. And I know, I'm not saying this is right, but I just know that working class men, as you say, uh, that hyper-masculinity, uh, homophobic, very homophobic, uh, sometimes racist um, and uh, misogynist at the same time. And you go, well, that that was that was part of the, the working class left. And it doesn't do anybody any good to pretend that it never existed. Yes. And you, there's a way of dealing with it, which is not just kind of pretending it's not there and just shutting everybody out. I mean, I think that's why that disconnect between I think that's why UKIP done so well. And part of the reason that, that Brexit happened is because the left, the, uh, the, what they call the Bian Ponsant left, you know, that, that, that elite left, just completely lost touch with that, with that roots movement. And instead of saying, look, we understand your concerns. We, we, don't, we can disagree about these things, but we understand them. Instead of that, it was, no, these things are bad. You're bad. It's, it's, it was almost a... Uh, a disdain for the working classes. Yeah, now intersectionality yeah. is a way to disown yeah. its roots. But the problem with intersectionality is that it's not quite a viable alternative because it lacks a it lacks a sufficient class based analysis. Yeah. Which is why it has the full backing of corporate America. Um, you know, whether it's Apple, whether it's Pepsi, whether it's um, you know, uh, massive conglomerates, uh, for example, in the the, the southern United States heavily leveraging laws which basically legalise discrimination against gay people. Right. You've got corporations stepping in to say, if you do this, we're pulling business out. Right. Now, in one hand, you could say, well, this is the market playing a role beyond its remit mm. in order to redress a balance in terms of a discrepancy that's that's going to result in inequality. Right. But we know that that's not how corporations function. So you have to look at what is the motivation. There's yeah. some sort of uh, other interest. There's an play. angle, yeah. And it's probably because if there is one form of activism that's compatible with uh, 
with unfettered capitalism, it's intersectionality without yeah. a class-based component. So ultimately, uh, you know, some people call it the oppression Olympics. I think that's one of those sneering phrases right. that doesn't okay. help. Ultimately, the intersectional analysis is very helpful for helping people to understand and articulate their own individual journey through life, how they interact with other people based mm -hmm. on aspects of race, based on aspects of gender, based on aspects of sexuality, religion, so on and so forth. In that sense, it's 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 a it's a natural evolution of thinking and understanding around how the individual interprets and reacts in the world. Right. The problem is, and it's the same with most social theories or underpinnings, yeah. is that when you start superimposing it onto individuals who either recoil or reject it, uh, then you have to run, come to all sorts of conclusions to why they reject it. You mm. can't just say they legitimately reject it. You yeah. have to say it's because they've got some other prejudice at work in their right. heart, and okay. so you know. So then, so so people like me on the left, I'm yeah. not one of the protected groups anymore. Right. I'm a white male, yeah. so it's okay to dismiss my mm -hmm. experience somewhat. You know, yeah. it's, it's kind of tacitly accepted that Absolutely. I'm the personification yeah. of privilege. So not naturally, if I have a it's like Top Trump's cards. I did a video yeah. using Top Trump's cards as a kind yeah. of, 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 of a way to illustrate it to right. sections of my audience who are working class and don't have a fucking clue about any of this stuff. Yeah. Excuse me, my language. No. And partly because it's never bothered us before on the podcast. Anyway. Partly because the intersectional analysis hasn't considered how it intersects with people who don't go to university. Yeah. Who are immediately excluded from the conversation about inclusivity. Right. So it's just on so many levels, it has so far to go. Yeah. People have began to weaponize it and yeah. apply it in such a way as it being this fully formed fact of life. Right. Yeah. And that is all wrong. The problem yeah. is people on the left who have disowned other yeah. sections of the left that you've described yeah. are so desperate for political traction and so desperate to avoid any more conflict that they have actually conceded so much ground to very privileged people yeah. within the left who use these tactics of closing down debate, um, of doxing people, of uh, trying to humiliate people online, because yeah. they never see themselves as aggressive, they never see themselves as oppressive, yeah. they never see themselves as instigators of confusion and conflict. Right. They see themselves because of the intersectional analysis as people punching up all the time. Right. So it justifies them going after anyone in any manner that they choose. The same way that it justified, you know, the pros going after the bourgeoisie. It, yeah. You know what I mean? It's the same yeah. thing. It's punching up. You can yeah. absolve yourself of having to consider complexity, of having to consider humanity, and just decide that's the enemy. Um, but ultimately, you're doing the same thing in your brain that a racist yeah. does. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that you resent a more socially acceptable demographic. Yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get Godwin's law invoked, you know, but obviously, most. Nazis didn't see themselves as punching down. They saw themselves as punching up against this. Well, you know, the Jew is the oppressor. Mm. They're up there. They're, they're earning all this money. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're freezing out Aryans from top positions in society. You know, we're the oppressed here. It's them that's the oppressor. And it's part of that dehumanization process yes. that we're talking about at the start. And I think the risk is with this intersectional analysis that people become a concept to you and it completely uh, devalues the whole conversation we were having before about authenticity and coming and approaching someone as an individual. I, as a therapist, 
when I see a client, I don't think of them as a man or a woman. I'm going to think of them as a unique individual with a set of advantages and disadvantages. Some of them may be uh, a product of their gender. I've seen people who've been um, sexually assaulted. Some of them may be a product of their class. Some may be a product of their um, religion, religion yeah. sexuality, culture. Most of them aren't, I would say. In most cases, it isn't. Um, and as soon as you come into that interaction with someone and see a woman or a man or someone who's privileged or um, someone who's not, uh, who's a victim, you're missing the opportunity to find out from first-hand experience, you know, what's going on for this person. Instead, of, you're, you're imposing your worldview um, on reality rather than taking your worldview from reality. Um, and I think that to say that, the, that because someone's a white male, they're automatically privileged is, um, is just nonsense. I mean, some white males are and some white males aren't. Some white males may have had the most horrendous childhood that you know the women around them didn't weren't exposed to and are dealing with their wounds from that. Uh, you many just many, never know. You part, just never know. Part of the part of the interesting aspect of the gender analysis as well yeah. is that it becomes taboo to if someone is talking about a gender-based analysis. I mean, it's like Richard. It's like Jonathan Hyde say, says in his book, "The Righteous Mind." Um, when someone's studying a subject, they begin to believe that that is the route to understanding everything. Right. So something about the way that we think, you know, someone yeah. smokes weed, they start to think, you know, if only hemp was in everything, everything in the world would be fine. Yeah. You know, there's something about our brain that begins to sort of see things and patterns and everything that are yeah. identifiable to us. Uh, and ultimately, I think that uh, the, the, the current social justice family of ideas has no room for plurality of perspective. So there's diversity of everything but opinion. There's inclusion of everyone but a certain type of perspective. Right. And, 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 but I don't, I'm not one of these people who says we need to destroy social justice. Right. Any criticism, and I've learned this through going on a journey through figuring out what works and what doesn't by failing constantly at trying to criticize it, and ultimately trying to get people advocates of it to concede some of the problems with it and the sweet spot that I've managed to find and it's not sweet at all but right. it's the sweetest spot I've found yet is I've got to do more as an individual making a choice I have to do more to resist the urge to react out of anger or aggression or right. score settling and to articulate at all times that I understand why intersectionality exists Criticism of intersectionality runs aground constantly because the critics don't acknowledge that people do experience drastic deficits culturally based on where they started on the economic spectrum, on the racial spectrum, on the gender spectrum. And that while that's not the answer to everything, you have to articulate clearly that you don't want to dismantle the mechanisms by which people articulate their difficulties in life sure and you don't want to destroy the activists who ultimately do bring into the conversation many struggles that we otherwise wouldn't be aware of whether it's we african kids with no legs who play five-a-side football somebody goes and films that 
gets money to run a project, that's social justice. That's making time out of your day to go and bring someone else's struggle into the forefront. So there's all these other positive aspects to yeah. it. So a criticism of it has to take that into consideration if it's to be deemed, you know, reasonable. Uh, and so that's what I attempt to do from now on. I'm not always good at it, but ultimately, if you start creating a space where other people who feel the same can move into, then when you can actually see a wee bit of a shift, and I think there is a bit of a shift now, I'm noticing it in the feminist community, where they're rejecting, the, they're rejecting um, this analysis that says, go after people, shut people down, we want safe spaces or else. Um, right. You know, people are saying, women are saying to other women, no, that's not how we want to conduct ourselves. Similar to the pushback in terms of the discussion around transgender, yeah. transgenderism, where women now who would regard themselves as feminists are saying, well, I should be able to talk about my femininity without that being seen as an attack yeah. on a man who has transitioned to being a woman or vice versa. And But this is the problem when identity becomes sacred yeah. because we can't do anything but impede on one another if identity is the centre of every discussion. Yeah. And so every dynamic becomes a power exchange and it's really, really difficult and it's really, really tiresome. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I don't see an end to social justice. I don't think the left is going to lose the culture war, as is as often being said. Right. But I do think that ultimately some, I think the intersectional stuff will be reined in. I have a okay. feeling that it will be reined in. Okay, I want to kind of talk about one another thing that I heard you talk about. I'm sure that we could like narrow on for hours. I'm really enjoying this episode. Um, but you have you expressed some views about um, sort of stress as a economic factor. I don't know if I'm expressing that as articulately as you would mm. in a talk that I saw you give, um, and I was really, I was really enjoying your perspective. So, can you talk a bit about that? Certainly. The, ultimately, the, the when we talk about poverty, we talk about inequality and propose solutions to dealing with it, whether it be wealth redistribution um, or, or or aspects like that then what's always often missing from the analysis, and it kind of links in a lot of what we've been talking about, about the emotional reality of how we experience and express things, what's often missing from the analysis is that one of the things that people from deprived communities are being deprived of, you know, by themselves as much right. as the society, okay. is peace of mind, is the capacity to absorb stress, to process um, life events that uh, are difficult, and to respond to them in such a way as to not exacerbate the already precarious circumstances. One of the this is how this is how inequality in terms of class really really expresses itself. But we haven't yet begun to grapple with how to quantify it in the same way that we quantify things like life expectancy or um, you know yearly salaries and all of these other measurements yeah. that we have. So when I look through my own experience and I look through the experience of many people in my community. What I see is um, a sort of pathological stress, which uh, is constant and acute, and it means that interacting with other people is difficult. It means that you're emotionally unavailable to support your family members when they're in stress. It reduces your capacity at every level, whether it's an individual, in a family, in a community, 
yeah. and ultimately a society um, to move forward to transcend the difficulties. So, for example, a person who is raised in an environment that people don't overreact to stress or that people aren't in constant emotional strain, then if something like a job loss happens or a bereavement happens or something unexpected happens, then people, like you said earlier, there's a bit of distance between the thing happening and the response to it. Then people respond to the situation. And what I noticed in my journey up and down the income scale and all the different cultural spheres that I move in, because I'm quite socially mobile, right. even though I come from low down, the difficulty for me is my margin for error is small. So it's very quickly go back to where I started. Sure. Um, and, and that's another aspect of how inequality expresses itself that we can go on to. But ultimately, the difference between many of the families that I see in communities where I have grew up, where I work, and families uh, and communities that would that that characterise perhaps as affluent or middle class, sure. although it doesn't explain everything, uh, is this capacity to absorb stress. Everyone experiences stress. Everyone experiences pain. But when you grow up in stress, you're predisposed to it. It's not only how you react to life, but it becomes the engine room of the chronic illnesses that you develop later in life, driving up the cost to yourself, to society. Ultimately, any analysis of where we're heading as a society that doesn't consider the role of stress and how we deal with it, either by trying to reorder the society around all of our individual needs, which is impossible, or build in resilience, where there is none, or where there's not a lot of it, in human beings, so that we become constantly mindful of our stress levels, the way we're constantly mindful of our hungry. Because ultimately, um, people are on their own in life. Right. Whether they want to pretend the state is going to look after them, whether they want to pretend even that the community and their family is going to look yeah. after them, in life you're on your own. And no one owes you anything, no matter what you think, no yeah. matter how hard you've had it, it's no one else's fault. You have to learn to manage, you have to learn to regulate your emotions, you have to learn to cope. And the best thing that people can do to support that is be honest about that and also set an example of what that looks like. Right, yeah. right. And, and, you know, and this, sorry, I, sorry to interrupt, yeah. it reminds me of something that you, you know, your uh, hero Jordan Peterson said in one of his yeah. presentations, I think it was called Don't Be a Victim. He says, you know, Acknowledge the fact that there's suffering in the world and try and reduce it, starting with yourself, so that when your dad dies, you can be the one that organizes the funeral and consoles the people around you. And, you know, start with yourself that mm -hmm. way yeah. and, um, you know, build up your own resilience. Uh, I did interrupt you, Darren. Do you want to... Oh, no, it's, it's perfectly fine. No, I, I, I think that that's... I think that that's... A, that's a difficult thing for some people to understand, mm -hmm. but it's one of those things that's really true. Um, I, now, that's not to say that we should work together as communities or that resources shouldn't be channeled um, and pulled and mm -hmm. channeled through the mechanisms in society that we can use to do that, but it's about less emphasis being placed on how we empower politicians to change society for us mm. and more about recognising that we have many of the things within us yeah. um, in order to 
change the filters through which we experience reality yeah. and that this isn't some crazy new age metaphysical bullshit no this is the deepest human knowledge yeah. that goes back thousands and thousands yeah. of years which is about living in harmony with yourself yeah. and balance with yourself yeah. by being mindful of yourself true to yourself and your fellow man and woman yeah. and everything in between and that ultimately aspiring to live better yeah to experience gratitude where it feels like you should just be resentful yeah. to push yourself through emotional barriers and break habits this will give you as much chance of escaping the gravity of any adversity yeah. as any modification to the structures of society would give yeah. you you yeah. could go anywhere on this earth a war zone you could go to a place where there's a famine you could go to a place uh, where there's lots of violence in a community you will find people who are grateful for what they have yeah, and this true. isn't because of some crazy religiosity although there might be a spiritual component to it yeah it's because some people get in alignment with themselves they get out of the way can the eye of the vortex kind of thing they begin yeah. to realize that actually when you're in a negative mindset when you're expecting other people to solve your problems for you yeah. and you're buying into the rhetoric of politicians who need you to depend yeah. on them yeah. so they can advance their own agenda yeah. then actually what you what, what you're doing is you're you're actually handing over all yeah. of your power your political power your social capital your spiritual power yeah. every single sense of agency that you could possibly have you're handing over someone else and you just sit away yeah. you know okay Oh, so it's not changed yet. Right? Yeah. I'm going to hand my power over to someone else. Then yeah. right. it's no way to live. It's no yeah, way it's, to live. And you, I mean, it's all about. It's just really simple. It's probably a cliched phrase. You know, you, you can't necessarily change the world. You can change your own world. You can change what's immediate in your life. And you're wasting your time. And you're you're throwing rocks at the moon trying to change major things if you cannot change the small things. And it just seems to be part of human nature. It's, like, it's easier to go on a march and protest than it is just to do the dishes or to be nice to your wife that you don't really love anymore mm. or your kids that you can't stand mm. or the old guy next door who's really a pain in the arse. Mm. You, know, you know, those things are harder to do, but at the same time, they're far simpler to do. You could, that's an immediacy that you can actually... Yeah, you can you get can, your yeah, friends. Uh, yeah. If your friends aren't supportive enough for you, you can... Uh, <laughs> and once I find out how you do that, folks, I'll be able to tell you how you do it. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> And, but I mean, what what you're saying is very interesting to me, both as a therapist and a libertarian, because uh, obviously what I believe that everyone has, and this is coming back to Carl Rogers again, what it takes to solve their own problems and be well-resourced with the right support. And I try and be part of providing that support and encourage people to get more support. Um, because with the right support, you do have what it takes to cope with your life, to thrive in your life, to solve your own problems. Without support, you might just go around in a circle because there's there's nothing to take you out yes. of that loop. Yes. But now, and this might this this is maybe a point of controversy or something like that. When through my own uh, attempts, I got into the kind of work by attempting to solve my own problems. I'm not from a working class background. I can't pretend to know what that's like. Uh, I'm from a middle class background, but uh, I had various problems myself. Um, my, uh, I have a parent who's exceedingly prone to anxiety and there were arguments in the house every day, basically. I don't think a day I grew up um, 
my parents weren't arguing and I absorbed that anxiety and it made it very difficult for me to approach different situations and I'm still I still consider myself in recovery from that now and I've seen a lot of changes over the last couple of years since I realized that was a problem now what it is apparent to me is a that it's pretty freaking hard to change a lot of the time especially on your own without support and b when you go out to find resources on how to change the quality of most of the resources out there is poor i would say compared to what i think they could be and now this is where i'd, I'd like to you know, bring I mean, are they poor in general or just poor for you? I mean, would they, maybe those things work there for are, there's some There are, there's various things out there that will help to a degree, mm -hmm. and there must be some stuff out there that's really good. But I think, um, you know, a lot of people will pick up some self-help book, books, try and read them, maybe practice some of the techniques, and find that it takes ages and ages to change and give up. There's a couple of books that I can say like really changed my life. One is uh, Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life by Marshall Rosenberg and other books on communication skills because you can apply them in day-to-day -day life. But broadly speaking, yeah, if you pick up a self-help book and you don't do the exercises and you don't take it seriously as an undergoing, reading it ain't going to help you. Well, some people buy books on diet and then fitness yeah. and then actually don't do anything. The thing <laughs> is we're impatient. And also because we're stressed yes when you're stressed you become impatient because you're in fight or flight so you're like i need to either fight or get out of here but change takes time sorry you're going to say well, that's what that's precisely why we have more disruption antisocial behavior violence and poorer communities because people live in a constant state of fight or flight and are constantly looking for some sort of anesthetic to relieve the feelings that come with that extreme emotional precarity right. where ultimately you're always in conflict with everything around you you're always drawing conclusions about as to why which are wrong and so ultimately you you you're um you know you the things that you use to soothe those difficult emotions become compulsions that right. insist on themselves as well as the stressful circumstances so that's why you see local economies and stress and poorer communities consistent ultimately of you know shops that are stacked to the gunnels with high calorie nutrient void food um uh, chippies you know which is much about nourishment as it is about comfort comfort yeah. food uh tanning salons because people feel like if they look better they'll feel better um that may be true to a degree bookmakers you know yeah. bookies yeah. Yeah, gambling. Gambling yeah. is is is, is it's fleeting stress relief. It takes you out of yourself. It, it's the new smoking in these communities, right. you know, in terms yeah. of the, the especially online families. And yeah. video game addiction as well. And but, but here's the point of controversy that I wanted to bring up, um, because I'm concerned that the welfare state, which I believe replaced the welfare society, which included unions friendly societies for mutual aid charity and so forth has basically made it okay for people not to have to confront these issues and could have possibly set back the field of psychotherapy for 50 years because lots of people have this problem which i've experienced as well 
I want to do something. I really want to do something. I want to write this book. I want to create this video. I, I, I want to write this play, but I also cannot motivate myself to do it, right? Mm. And um, so many people experience this problem that there must be a massive demand, sorry to use equal sort of economic language, mm -hmm. but there must be a massive demand to have this problem solved. And yet people can just go on not having the problem solved because there's um, a safety net which isn't based on, are you engaging? Are we getting you, are we, your benefits depend on you showing engagement with community and improvement you know maybe getting a job maybe doing some volunteering you know if you can work for i think that's hours, the way beverage designed it though up. i think in fairness so that's I the way it was designed is, yeah as a person on the left do you think that's you know a heartless libertarian point of view and um, do you mm -hmm. or how do you engage with it i mean i'm i'm not i i want safety nets i'm just not really sure in the long term i want the government to yeah. do it yeah. i don't want the government to abolish it tomorrow because that would be a disaster we need to have systems in place to replace it but in the long term i'd want to see mutual aid i'd want to see friendly societies i want to see charities stepping in and and people and, and people helping each other not at the point of a gun not not and, and, and yeah, yeah. yeah so so sorry just no, the, that, that that's fine I, um, I, well, I mean, as someone who was on benefits for an awful long time, I have insight into the fact that there were times where I probably took the piss a bit with it, or there were times when I genuinely felt that my benefits were compensation for how harshly I had been raised. Really? So I, I was, I, I basically, it was a, my understanding of why I was on benefits, what benefits were, and my own entitlement to benefits. Yes. was rooted in an understanding of society where the world owes me something mm -hmm. um, and I think that that to a certain extent might be true in a society where resources are pulled and shared uh, but at the same time as a human being I'm not empowering myself by thinking like that ultimately you at this point you need to have some sort of uh, safety net because people have become so dependent yes. on it that you would need to gradually build capacity to, to withdraw it incrementally. The problem I feel that we have is that we oscillate between uh, different political parties. And so actually it would take political courage to say, let's create a long-term plan. Yes. Ultimately, I'm sure the ideal would be for everyone to be off benefits and to be self-sufficient and for yeah. there to be enough opportunity for that to happen. But there's no political courage or will or insight to say, okay, this is going to be a hundred year plan. Uh, the plan is, uh, these are the new conditions that people need to meet uh, to get benefits. We'll phase this in gradually. Here's what happens if you don't, blah, 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 blah. And it's a, and it's a long, ambitious plan of not so much getting people off benefits because it's ideologically driven. Yes, I, I'm not ideological about it. I don't see people on benefits as scroungers. I'm concerned about the long-term health of humanity, you know, but please go well, on. It's a very small, what we need to remember as well is the perspective of, the, there's a very small and an even smaller number of people 
who are kind of languish on benefits, right? So you've got a lot of um, families where people grow up in workless households that are very stressed out. And so it's just normal. The capacity for them to get a job and hold it down is it's impractical to withdraw their benefits. They were they're gonna drive up costs somewhere else in right, the system. Right. Whether it's in a rehab, whether it's in a jail cell, whether it's social work costs. I mean, just putting a kid in a secure unit for a week is four thousand pounds. Right. It's four thousand pounds. So, the, the, like the 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 benefit bill is what we always focus on because politically it's quite expedient, yeah. but actually it's far more complex in terms yeah. of looking at the, the what we need to get what we need to deal with is how people cope with stress because it's stress that's pushing all of these behavioural triggers that cause people to react in ways that are likely to place them in the care of the state that drives up all of the costs, not just in benefits, but across the board, whether it's policing, whether it's rehabilitation from drugs uh, or whatever. Well, I mean, see, I think as kind of libertarians, there's a perception of us that, you know, as as people who are for markets, right, you know, we we're somehow in favor of this atomistic society where everyone's just out for themselves and things like that although i do think you know economic interactions for mutual benefit are a form of community but if i'm right in my account of history that there were a bunch of friendly societies and unions mutual aid organizations charities churches and so forth right that was assimilated by the state into the welfare state it's that that's actually created the atomization because people used to look the people that they were helping in the eye and actually be engaged. I think the reason why there was so much poverty at that time is because society was, you know, 10 times poorer than it is now. And um, we've got so many resources here, but I don't, I think- Can that I venture we, yeah. an example of maybe what you're talking about? Please, if you, if you look at uh, social housing, um, when the when government took communities and broke them up for their for their own benefit, you know, we're going to take you to these slums in Glasgow and we're going to put you into these uh, brand new housing schemes. Sounds great, you know, great intentions, but at the same time, they broke up. Uh, sometimes, you know, it wasn't. We, we tend to think that, that these houses were all slums and everybody was living in great deprivation, property, mm. uh, poverty, and it was all very Dickensian, yeah. you know. And there's a kind of poverty porn aspect to that. But when you look at it, the reality was actually not quite like that. Yep. Yes, there was uh, substance abuse. Yes, there was uh, you know uh, domestic violence going on. But it wasn't uh, as commonplace as everybody supposes. And there was cohesive uh, communities there. And there was com uh, cohesive families, yes. especially families that worked, even though in a, dis a dysfunctional form, it did work. And kind of government broke that in a sense by breaking them up and sending yeah. them into these other I think that's an I think that's probably the, what you're talking about there, I mean even going back to the kind of the consecutive industrial revolutions, right? Mm. So what happened was a massive explosion in the population. Mm. Right. So this is the first thing that 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 is these are the germinal events that okay. lead to where we are now, where what we have is a dysfunctional family of social problems, which is that the blowback from the expansion and contraction of our whole civilization in this part of the world. So 
you know, when the when the, the after the slum clearances, because the housing schemes would have been created earlier if it hadn't been for the Second World War. Okay. So not only did their expansion have blowback in terms of the social problems and how it would manifest in human behaviour and people's health, but also geopolitically, the aftermath of many other decisions back then from the First World War to the sec creating the conditions for the Second World War to take place. Yeah, so just but it's all good looking back in hindsight and going, oh, we shouldn't have done that, we shouldn't yeah. have done that, we shouldn't have done that. We were doing the best we could do then. Uh, you know, you've got to assume a position, you've got to come out for a position of good faith at some point, mm -hmm. and you just begin to think everyone is against you. So ultimately, the the decision to create the housing schemes happened about 15 years later, when the problems were 15 years more complicated. And this obviously led to a rush in creating the social housing right. so that there was capacity to clear the slums. So what happened was they sort of imported the, the, the social housing from the continent, which might have worked over there. But over here, um, what happened was you got architects like Sir Basil Spence who had really grand ideas about not just creating housing that was enough to physically uh, deal with the population, but it was supposed to revolutionise the way that we thought about it. It was, it was, it, it was a very genuine attempt to raise the quality of life for poor people in such a way as to even, even integrate into the contours of the architecture itself, yeah. the history of working class people. So it wasn't just go and live like battery hens. This was supposed to be. No, I get it, I, and, and absolutely, I agree that it was. The, the intentions were absolutely Aye. good, but I just feel that uh, feel who gives a damn how I feel. My assessment is that when government, as soon as government tries to do anything, even for the good, it somehow goes to ratchet. You know. Well, I, I obviously there are issues. I think what right. I, what I can see is that um, the, the the this this assumption on the left. That if the state does it, it somehow implies more virtue yeah. than if a business does it is ridiculous. I've been writing my book in Starbucks okay. because I can't get peace at the library. Right. 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 There's the market for you. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I So the library's become a community centre because the community centres are shit. Right. right. So that there's the so market showing you what's happening. Mad, but yeah. The community centre yeah. becomes a thing that the, that, that the local authority leases out to make money. So everyone that should be in the community centres in the library doing their European computer driving licences, doing their toddler baby bounce courses, yeah. learning English, learning Chinese, all of the things yeah. that ain't happening in a community centre and they're happening in a library, which has become yeah. a drop-in centre. So people that want need somewhere quiet don't go to a library anymore. Yeah. There's nowhere quiet in this society to go. You can't even really drive away to go somewhere unless you know someone who's got a big house in the country. Being quiet. There's very little places you can go now yeah, without having to spend money, yeah. but you don't really realise or appreciate what a library is for until you need quiet, okay. right? Yeah. And so, like, these are a lot of the intricacies that a lot yeah. of people miss because yeah, they don't. Yeah. But, but the, 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 so that's an example of how I okay, the state is responsible for the library and the community centre and the local authority, but there's deeply dysfunctional practices at work I've seen up close in the local authority. Just to say, I've seen up close in the police service. Just it's yeah. not close everywhere that I've yeah. been, and it's partly because of the you know contractions in the economy lead to cuts, leads to job insecurity ultimately. So people who get into a job to do good because they believe in the virtue of the state, 
to become self-interested and ruthlessly individualistic yeah. while talking in the language of public Got, yeah. services yeah. when really everyone resorts to their default position which is what's in it for me what am i getting why am i not being recognized for my effort why are they getting on in life and i'm no that's what's really going on in the public sector okay except it's, it's there's no efficiency to justify <laughs> right. it yeah. Got, do you know yeah. what i mean yeah so it's, absolutely it's a yeah. complete mess it's a complete mess now does does that mean we should hand it all over to microsoft no of course it doesn't but we should at least be able to talk honestly about the problem it should be okay to say that the state should be running certain things but that it's not running certain things okay yeah well i think there's a terror in the public sector of talking about that because it's like no don't give any ground because they'll fucking cut us you know it's those, the way that's the way you yeah. know those tories are just, just waiting for you know the the telegraph the daily telegraph is for, uh waiting for any chance to point out our inefficiencies and they'll axe jobs and i think there is a, you know you don't criticize your own you don't you don't um you don't criticize your you don't grasp on your own class mm. yeah. you know you certainly don't criticize the nhs right uh which uh, well i waited i waited five hours uh see this is this would be another area where people on the left will, if they ever watch this or hear me saying this they'll be just like i he's changed mm, yeah. uh, but i just say then you've stayed the same you know, the world's changed if yeah. we don't change them you know but I, 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 I've I've been in and out of hospitals through all, all my life through addiction related overdoses break mental health breakdowns I've took advantage of psychological services neurolinguistic programming cognitive behavior therapy everything that's on offer out there on this uh, to, to, to try and uh, get insight into my problems or help with my mm -hmm. problems you know, uh, so I understand uh, why the services are there and understand yeah. how vital they can be but also understand that they're dysfunctional and I understand that they're self-perpetuating so the minute that a service is created if it's not showing people how to be resilient and self-sufficient yeah. then what it's doing is creating a demand for yeah. itself yes. as well as it's what it's doing and so it's the same with the work I do in communities where um, often I'm employed by organisations that pour massive resources like water into a cup into a community yeah. But then they withdraw them all, and then, oh, they, and then they withdraw them all. They don't show people. They don't leave the equipment there. Yeah. They don't leave the skills there. So they, they don't show somebody how to fish. They just yeah. 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 So it's just expansion, contraction, and not only did they make people skeptical of outsiders by doing that, because they come in and install their own temporary hierarchy and usurp all of the actual natural order of things, yeah. but also they create a dependency on outsiders, yeah. services. Um, which not only creates an expectation which undermines their own agency but also drives up cost because yeah. to be perfectly honest we all know that efficiency is not the biggest attri uh, attribute of the public sector right uh, well i mean that's the thing i mean someone on the left did actually send me a video today going is the public sector really less efficient and um I'm amazed because at this point, I think the main argument for public sector services is not, uh, is basically how will the poor get, get them if it's left up to the market? I think the left has largely conceded that where there's, um, see, people like to use this word competition, where there's competition mm -hmm. between services, but that's got a negative um, 
connotation. It's not about competition. It's about you as a user having a choice between service providers so that you can get a service you like. I think the left has conceded where people have more choice, they're likely to get better service. They don't like monopolies. We don't like them either. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, this efficiency thing, um, I, call me, I just think that, to be honest, social prob without social problems, what is the need for a big government? You know, if we can get people out of poverty and people no longer feeling stressful, supposing everyone was rich enough to send their kids to a, a private school and choose what school, if everyone was rich enough to have health insurance, this would just completely undermine the basis for even having a state. When we talk about poverty, and I think you touched on this yeah. uh, earlier, Darren, I think poverty of mind, poverty of spirit, uh, poverty of ambition, I think those are far more dangerous to the fabric society and right. to human beings than actual, especially in Scotland, the UK. people talk about poverty in the UK, and I've got, personally, they've, they've got to be talking about relative poverty, because yeah. it's, it's not poverty as you'd understand it in Bangladesh or in, uh, you know, in, anywhere in Africa, it's just a relative poverty. I'm relatively in poverty compared to the guy living in a five-bedroom house in Cumberly Bank. Yep. He's in relative poverty compared to Bill Gates, you know. So and I think there's a hyperbole with that word. And I think in terms of, I don't think the problem is financial poverty in, in the UK as much as it is poverty of spirit and poverty mm. of... Uh, yeah, and I think... I would, agree with, I, would agree with that. I would agree with that in part. And also, that's partly why I've started to kind of, like, formulate this stress-based analysis of yeah, it because yeah. on one hand for me it seems to be the connective tissue right. around a lot of the issues involving antisocial behavior basically all of the behaviors that we associate with the poor mm -hmm. uh, whether it's lifestyle or whatever but also that it simplifies how we think about it so if we try to set ourselves a target of reducing stress first of all and recognition that the mm -hmm. other problems many of which are quite intractable uh, because of their complexity and because there's no political will, because yeah. the economy is in such a state that uh, politically it would be difficult to take the sort of long-term decisions that would need to be made if you were seriously trying to reduce poverty on, in, in any serious way. So what you want to do is, yeah, maybe some people would disagree with, it, it, with the sort of tacit acceptance that poverty will always exist in some form, yeah. relatively speaking, as yeah. as how do we build a new form of resilience that's about human beings recognizing that they can potentiate better circumstances yeah. through their own action, regardless of their material wealth? Mm. And that this is something that I have learned through being at near the bottom of this society. Right. And so, you know, I have that I, I can say that I'm not someone who's come from privilege and is kind of imposing my stop being poor. You know Paris Hilton pish on everybody. Right, okay. You know I'm saying, look, man, I've, I, I've dealt, I've seen it up close. I've seen violence. I've seen abuse. I've seen drugs, alcohol up close. And the way that I personally managed to traverse those circumstances was, yes, support being in place, and that is crucial yes. to point out. Yes, a lot of the dysfunctional services that I interacted with did play a crucial role in stopping a sharp descent to the bottom. Well, the heroin is right, right? Um, uh, but at the same time, 
they also created they also created dependencies. When mm. I moved into homeless accommodation, I was there for three years. I had a support worker 24 hours a day. I was put on high rate disability allowance. Basically, I was handed forms and just told to sign them. Right. Their job, as they seen it, was to maximise my benefits in order to stabilise my life. Okay. But actually, I ended up becoming an unruly confusion of expenses because I started drinking more and drugging more and keeping everyone around me drunk. And actually, I couldn't even manage my money because right. I had no... Right. So you weren't actually getting the support and the learning the day-to-day -day right. skills. No, I had, I had money back. I was getting in, in excess of £300 a week at one point, and as well as my house paid for, and, and obviously all the support of being in homeless accommodation. And still, support workers would come to my door and be like, you've not paid your five or electricity. Right. You know, you, these you being, small responsibilities yeah. that I had, I couldn't adhere to because it was just so chaotic. Because uh, my view is that the government doesn't have the the information on the ground to look someone in you the uh, like you in the eye, find out what your needs are, and provide for them. Because it's a top-down hierarchical structure. Mm -hmm. The best thing they can do is put money in your direction and hope for the best. Whereas if we didn't have this atomized society, if people were dependent on social engagement and brought that environment was fostered, then people could say, well, what's Darren's needs? Okay, he's got an alcohol problem, so we can't give him all his money at once. Maybe we actually need to buy his food for him for the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you build up trust with that agency, they give you more agency in proportion to how able you are to use that agency wisely. Mm. And uh, I think I think that's something that On the left is taboo to acknowledge that though. It's taboo sure. to acknowledge some of the self-defeating aspects of people who are in poverty. So, you know, it's okay for us to challenge that with our, with our peer group, you know, but then we get offended when people right. who seem, seemingly have no insight in it say mm. things like, well, you, you didn't get a job, you know, it's offensive. Yeah. And truth, you know, laziness and my, my, for my, my topping's worth is that if you, you remarked on it earlier, you want to write a play, you can't get motivated to do it. It's because either you don't really want to write a play, you just think you do, or some aspect of it is causing you fear. Yes. And the fear manifests often as a lazy attitude towards I something. Totally agree. And this is the key misunderstanding of what the poverty experience does mm. to people behaviorally. They take a lazy attitude to answering letters and dealing with correspondence mm -hmm. because it's stressful. Because yes. when they open a letter, they will become obligated yeah. to respond to another person, either doing something that involves writing, speaking, that makes them nervous, yeah. or they take a lazy attitude to something because they think they can't do it. So they take a lazy attitude to employment because they have to deal with a number of things. They might not be aware of this, but yeah. they, need to deal, they might need to deal with people, and that's difficult. Yeah. They might need to deal with being at their comfort zone, that's difficult. They might need to deal with no having a joint, yeah. or no having a drink for a certain amount of right. time, and that's difficult. Uh, rejection. I mean, one thing is, I think a lot of people, if you just went up to them and said, here's a job, turn out tomorrow, they would do it. But the idea of filling out 50 forms and not getting responded to is mm. like, oh man, I just can't face that. Yes. I mean, I've got to be honest. I mean, I, I would describe myself as a lazy person. 
Um, but it just happens to be that I I also I hate having no money more than I hate going to my work. Do you know I mean I, I go to my work not because I like going to my work? Go to my work because people that I interact with on a daily basis will insist that I pay them for their services. Yes. And I've not you know I'm, I'm not going to inherit it. I don't think I'm going to marry it. You know, so unless I work for it, yeah, I'm not going to have any money. And it's that that, that, comes, that compels me to do it. I'm not like my old man. My old man was a worker. Mm. You know, you'd find work today, you know, about the house even. Yeah, you know, he yeah, was a yeah. working guy. Mm. Get up early in the morning. You know, I'm a bit lime a bed guy if I can get away with it. Yeah. So I, I am lazy, you know. Um, but I can't afford to be. Mm. It's, it's really that simple. And I certainly can't. Uh, I certainly cannot. Uh, allow myself to live at the expense of somebody else indefinitely because that's just plain wrong. As lazy as I am. I think one of the big, yeah. big, big misjudgments, however, that the history will reveal in terms of uh, the, the state's posture towards the poor, yeah. in terms of this campaign to demonise uh, people in poverty yeah. uh, and to support the demonisation culturally right. uh, through the benefit system. So this takes many forms that are quite pernicious. Whether it's the TV programs, obviously the state's not involved in that, but they yeah. complement this idea that pop people are deserving of their poverty, that they exacerbate it themselves to their own foolishness, uh, that they have no money because they're careless with money. Some of these things are true, right. but unless you're in also unless you're portraying a lot of the other complexities about it, then you have to take it for what it is, which is a campaign, whether conscious or not, that's enacted by people who haven't experienced poverty. Therefore, they're not looking for the nuance. Are looking for the stereotypes as well as that uh, if you actually get letters from the benefits agency sent out to you they're run in such ways to uh, uh, um, provoke anxiety and provoke fear so actually all of these emotions are the engine room shame fear all of these things that happen in cultures of poverty and cultures of abuse that hold people back and keep people on benefits then a lot of these things um these things are exacerbated by interactions sure. with the state the state thinks that that force and humiliation and indignity will incentivize yeah, people. Yeah. But for every person Actually, that it freezes, for every person that incentivizes, uh, another person relapses, another person says, fuck it, another person reacts adversely, which drives up costs everywhere else. Right. The public sector, the state essentially is about a variety of different departments passing on costs to the next department. Yeah. So that overall, the culmination doesn't reduce the money that's going out. It might reduce the money that's going out from this department so they can hold up and say the benefit bills down. What about the social work bill? Mm. What about the rehabilitation service bill? What about the bill for the police? Like overall, the money keeps going up, the cost of society keeps going up. And if you were to, if you were to come up with a, a, a comprehensive strategy that was about trying to initially just reduce people's stress levels yeah. in a variety of ways, yeah. then you could at least stem the bleed. You're not going to answer every question, but the stress in people's life is manifesting it as a stress in public service, which is a stress on public finances, which is a cycle of stress that we are living in at individual level, family level, community level, and state level. And, and you know, for, for, for me, that is bringing a clarity to my thinking around the issue. And my contribution to that as one person in a massive society is to take care of myself. Yeah. is to know myself, to understand my intentions when I do things, and to try and aspire to be calmer and therefore more useful to myself and the community. And that's the only thing a human being can do, sure. even if you're taking part in direct action, even if you're taking part 
and action that's about pushing back against the state as a collective. You are no use to anybody off your nut, stressed out. You're a shit activist if you're stressed. You're a shit person in the community. I don't care how many people love to hear you speak. I don't care how many followers you've got. Yeah. I don't care how well you write. If you're motivated by resentment and stress, you're it's bullshit. It's toxic. Yeah. It doesn't work. And so people, are, I think that if people transmit a more wholesome signal, a more mindful signal, then people will gravitate towards that because we ultimately really do want to cooperate with each other, we ultimately do want to see the best in each other. We want to feel safe and cooperation makes us feel safe. Yeah. So Do for anyone oh, out there who wants to um, take on that mantle and make it a bigger part of their life, are there any resources that you recommend that you think might be helpful to people? Well, I mean, for me, the primary resource for me is the recovery literature. Uh, that I've been kind of immersed in Can you for the last few years. Well, I mean, for anyone out there who may be struggling with addictions or anything like that, there's a lot of... Uh, the, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, for me, uh, helped to... It was my first introduction to what you would call new mindfulness. Right. It takes on a lot of forms. Basically, one of many books that, that attempts to distill a lot of the spiritual truths of our life, you know, that, that are about... Um, recognizing uh, how our intentions and motives uh, drive our behavior and how that behavior drives how people respond to us, thus creating the kind of the conditions of our life. And that by developing not only an awareness around your, you know, your flaws, your defects, um, uh, but by developing an aspiration to uh, rein them in, mm. you know, that, that you will create the conditions for your life to improve and that, you know, scaled up to the level of a society, if everybody was operating in for that sure. capacity, society would be more harmonious. But the key uh, the, the key thing that I've learned from it is uh, it, it's, it's took me down a lot of other paths. It's opened me up to other ways of looking at life because as I recover from, not just addiction, but I recover from a state of mind where I always thought I was right about everything, and I always thought people disagreed with were bad people, all of these conclusions that I draw that push me further from reality, make me more unhappy, make me eat more shite, drink more shite, take more shite, uh, and, then I, and then run to the doctor for antidepressants, mm -hmm. and then announce that I'm mentally ill to everyone, mm -hmm. and not realising that that I've got to take some kind of responsibility for my own mental health. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and that'll be a taboo thing to say uh, yeah. on the left. But it's true. It's true. There is a link between the way that you think, the way that you behave, and how you mentally feel and how that manifests in you long term. Now, since I've took responsibility for myself and walked away from a diagnosis of a personality disorder, walked away from a diagnosis of depression, um, accepted that most of the things that go on in my life are as a result of my own thinking habits and behaviour and reactions, then I experience depression less. When I do experience it, I don't decide that it lasts six weeks because that's how long a diagnosis lasts. Yeah. I decide that that's how I feel in that moment and I'll take the necessary action based on self-knowledge and experience to mitigate the effects yeah. Until I feel better. Simple things. Go for a walk. Get, you know, I'm not entitled to feel good all the time. Yeah. Like, where, yeah. where, where did I learn that I'm allowed to be happy all the time? Yeah. Where did I learn that I can have ulterior motives, be selfish, self-serving and egotistical, drown my thoughts out with television, 
and pulverise my bladder and brain cells with coffee and somehow I'm going to feel fucking brilliant every day. Mm-hmm. Like, what point did I decide that that was anything other than a juvenile expectation of life? Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't support people who don't have that insight. Yeah. Sometimes people might need a drug to stabilise them because they're on a journey towards that insight. We shouldn't demonise people for thinking the way we used to think. However, we can transmit our own signal based on where we're at now. And where I'm at now is in a journey more and more towards being more tolerant of myself and of other people. And and, and it makes me feel better. Good word. You had something? Uh, well, I was just going to let uh, Darren plug his, yeah. uh, his so not, stuff. Yeah. Uh, not everyone we'll might know that, out to that, that um, Darren, well, I did announce it, is also Loki, the Scottish rapper. And he's got oh, a new quite, quite high profile album. at the moment. <laughs> He, uh, not low-key, uh, low but high-profile, and it's Scottish <laughs> Liberty Podcast. So um, tell us a little bit about your album, Trigger Warning. Okay, so the album is the culmination of a kind of year-long project of provocations where ultimately I use my platform as someone on the left in Scotland to really kind of throw the cat among the pigeons uh, with a few things. So it began as a social media-based project where... In a non-stressful kind of way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but these are part of where I'm at now is as a result of what I've learned on yeah. the journey about self-maintenance and not exacerbating conflict. But I've had to create a lot of disharmony and sometimes I need to do the damage before I can do the repair. That just seems to be a pattern of my life. Okay. And, and so uh, ultimately the trigger on an album on the surface of it, it's just a hip-hop album. It's got really good tunes, it's got banging hip-hop beats, it's got good rhymes. But a repeat listener will be rewarded with actually a story and a narrative that takes place through it that attempts to distill many of these issues around identity and social justice and nationalism in a story much the same way as like a play you would write would or a book would, uh, where it doesn't try to draw any conclusions or make any moral assertions but rather throws all the different ingredients into the mix and expresses them in a variety of ways through the journey of, of, of in this case, a kind of a character that's mostly based on me for the benefit of the audience, okay. but it diverges from me. Uh, it's about how a guy intersects with all of these things as they begin to push back against them. Okay. So it's about misogyny, masculinity, identity, mm-hmm. nationalism. It's about a kind of tour of Scottish culture. Right. Um, and Is it, it, would it be fair to call it a concept album? Aye, it okay. takes, it's inspired obviously by a lot of a great concept albums, okay. whether it's Jeff Wayne, War of the Worlds, uh, which kind of like, you know, the, yeah. the good concept albums are, 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 are thematically linked songs that are kind of unified by an image. Yeah. Uh, so what want, the world, uh, exactly. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was sort of take that to the next level. It sounds incredibly pretentious, but ultimately that my ultimate goal yeah. was take it to the next level of complexity. So not just thematic chronology to the sound of the thing, uh, not just a thematic arc, but plot points, a twist, uh, character development. So if you listen to it, the more you listen to it, the more emerges from it. Uh, and, and Trigger Wall is the first part of a kind of two-part story. So I've been working on that for a while. It's just been released. The response has been brilliant from my fans, which I would have expected, kind of. But the response has been such that I can tell that they feel it's one of my strongest project, okay. which 
17, 18 projects in. It's pretty good. Okay, great. You know, and where can they find it? Where you can, can people get, get You can get it on my band camp. So it's just Mr. Loki Scotland. Uh, bandcamp.com if you just google Loki Scottish rapper trigger one and it'll come up okay uh, so 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 uh, people should check it out and obviously not everyone is, is cool with the accent at first or, or not everyone is into hip-hop but I think there's enough depth to the thing that you'll be able to find another way in okay. if those things put you off okay <laughs> and you've got a book on the go hi I'm, I'm in the middle of writing it I'm about to complete the first draft I'm going away tomorrow to uh, someone's cottage, they've offered me a place to go and write for a week. Thank, Thank God. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, finish the book. It's called Poverty Safari. Ultimately, it's a book that kind of marries a bit of journalism, a bit of kind of opinion, and a bit of personal experience. Okay. Marries them together in such a way as to put forward the case that I've been making just now, which okay. is the big uh, defining feature of my life. Um, my community uh, is not financial, mm -hmm. it's emotional, and uh, that's where the disadvantage is. Emotionally, people who grow up in stressful circumstances have less capacity to deal with yeah. stressful circumstances which tend to happen more in their own life. Yeah. So ultimately, self-sufficiency, self-awareness is as important as any state intervention sure. or, or wealth distribution in terms of handling uh, the problem. And all things being equal, when can we hope to see that? Uh, we... The book yeah. comes out in September. So it was meant to be June, the deadline's been pushed back. Basically, we want to give it the best possible chance sure. of it being successful. So September is when basically the news cycle starts again after Parliament comes back. So releasing it during the summer is for this kind of book it's not a good idea so, right. okay. so we'll definitely have you back on the show when your book's been released uh, we do have a couple of questions i think one for you and one that i guess i'm gonna have to handle um does socialism oppress individualism oh i mean it's just a matter of perspective I, 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 I never knew I was a socialist until I knew that that was the word. I, I was raised a certain way. I didn't realise that that was a socialist way that I was raised. Okay. So, like, uh, I, I, I don't identify as a socialist internally. It's something that people apply to me okay. in culture and communities because some of the things I say fit a pigeonhole for them. Sure. But I've always been kind of sceptical of socialism in this sense that Socialism and socialists believe that they're acting in the interests of the many. When actually, I've seen a lot of evidence that it's a lot of self-interested people mm -hmm. acting in harmony. So oh, yeah. it really it creates the illusion of collective action yeah. when it's a lot of people acting in their own interests at the same time because their interests coalesce. Right. Which means it's still socialism, but it means that there's a level of disingenuousness about what's really going on or yeah. lack of insight. And that's why I've started to trust socialist activists less okay. because they don't have that insight or are not willing to admit that that's actually what's going on. I would rather see someone be honest and say, well, I, this is in your interest, my individual interest. I'm a socialist because it suits me to right. take resources from people right. and give them to my people. Exactly. Right. And that's yeah. fair enough. That's legitimate. Let's, well, let's, I, I've got, yeah. it's, legitimate. it's more honest. Right, yeah. let, let, let's deal with that. 
you know, that's another discussion for another time. Yeah. It, it, it's more honest, I think, and that's that's the point. It's we're either dealing with people who don't understand that, or deluded enough not to understand that, or who are being de deliberately dishonest about it. And that's where I'm starting to diverge from what and we're never, and, yeah. ah, exactly, exactly. Okay, and the other question is, what is the libertarian view of fixing the polarization of wealth? This will only get in, be getting worse with increased automation, where mid-income jobs are lost and productivity is increased. Okay, well, I reject the premise that uh, automation will create a greater disparity of wealth. In fact, what we've seen throughout history is that automation drives down the cost of producing services, making them affordable to people that previously couldn't afford them, say like your laptop, your car. And this comes from a Marxist misconception of the world, which is that you've got people called workers and people called capitalists and people called consumers. Actually, everyone is a consumer as well as a producer. So if you only look at people in their capacity as producers, you will have a fallacious economic understanding. Whereas if you understand that people are consumers as well as producers, you understand that mechanization is actually beneficial to everyone and has allowed people who live today to have a greater standard of living than even the richest feudal lords in the world had 200 years ago. Um, as for um, fixing the polarization of wealth, for, in the libertarian view, there's two ways of getting resources. One is by the voluntary exchange of goods and services, which is uh, mutually beneficial. So if I swap you a pen for a tie, you obviously want the pen more and I want the tie more. We both benefit. We're cool with that. What we're not cool with is people using the force of the state in order to gain resources. And you'll find that a lot of the richest people in the world have corporations that lobby the government and get their wealth by um, biasing the market and prejudice in their favor by uh, passing regulations that small businesses cannot comply with. And this accelerates wealth to the top. And it also creates a tendency for businesses to figure out how they can use the state to gain money instead of uh, serve the customers better and I hope that adequately answers your question. Yeah, it was pretty comprehensive I thought. Yeah, yeah, what he said. Yeah, <laughs> um, so. um, I have so thoroughly enjoyed yeah. this podcast. I mean, we this must be one of our longest because I just really, really enjoyed the conversation and I, I would love to have you back another time. Yeah, to get, um, get I've enjoyed this. it as well. It's been, it's nice to just kind of talk at length about things and think things through and I've definitely you know, coming from a from a community and a culture where certain thoughts were not permitted, I've enjoyed generally this last few months of broadening my horizons in terms of you know as much as I might not agree with a lot of the things that I hear, it enriches my experience as a human being to understand the complexity and also come to understand that the people who I disagree with have the same intentions I have, and that this ultimately evokes in me less alarm and fear about the nature of the world. Because right. for a long time I thought everyone's against us, people want us eradicated, people want us this and that, and drawing these conclusions. And actually it was just another part of my anxiety mill that I was feeding into, you know, and, and, and talk to people who have different points of view. 
and realise that they want what's best for people in society the same as I do, then no, it's 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 a nice feeling. Great, and I think that you will be a real asset in the same way that you've been broadening your mind by listening to people that you disagree or didn't have the same premises as, to our audience who come from a different political background from what you do. And I think that you've given a real great opportunity to get a window into, into you know, a, an insight into a different a different political sphere. So I thank you for that. And I look forward to having you back. Uh, me too. Thanks for coming. Cheers, guys. And thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. And catch you next week.